Well, if you will, open me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one. We began last week going through the book of Second Peter and uh, looking specifically at this opening greeting and this glorious truth about God's divine work in our life, that we have obtained a faith from Him, that He has the, the very faith that we use to be justified before him, that we, that we trust in his promises with. This very faith itself is a gift from God that we receive from him. And, and really this theme is going to continue on in these next couple of verses, in, in the first lines of the letter after the greeting that we'll look at this morning, just in verses 3 and 4. What Peter is going to say here really lays the foundation for the ethical instructions, the, the ethical exhortations that he's going to give throughout uh, the rest of the letter. But, but we have to have a foundation, and that foundation is rooted in grace. And that's what we find here in these uh, first couple of verses. So if you will, as we uh, begin our time together, uh, we're going to start by reading Second Peter chapter 1, and uh, we'll read verse 3 and 4 together. So Peter here is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we are grateful for these very truths that you are working in us. That by your very power, you have granted us all things. You call us to be a people who are godly. When you call us out of the world, you call us for a purpose. That we would be image bearers, that we would reflect your righteousness in the world, that all of our lives would be a reflection of the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness of your holy ways. This is the task that you've given to us. This is our command that we be godly. And yet we know that we cannot do this in our own strength. We know that the power of the flesh wages war against us. So we need something stronger. We need a power greater than sinful flesh. And it is that very power that you grant to us. And so Lord, I pray for our time this morning that you would speak to us and instruct us from your 
word and that you would embolden us all the more by your promises to be a people who confidently pursue godliness, knowing that because this is your will, you will equip us with all things we need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think one of the surest ways to lead someone down a dangerous and harmful path of destructive behaviors is to strip them of meaning, to strip them of any purpose. Without purpose, it is very easy for somebody to drift into the moral chaos that surrounds us and into the moral chaos that, as we read a moment ago from Romans 7, always lies close at hand. Many young boys and, and men have no concept of purpose in their life. They have no idea what it means to be a man. Many of them grow up in homes without a father, without an example to see. Many others grow up in a home with a very passive father who does not parent, who does not lead, who does not shepherd his family. And then many others grow up in, in families where the father is a very abusive father in his craving for power. Many of them are told that to be a man necessarily places you in a position of privilege, power. And, of course, when we hear those words, we're to understand that that's a bad thing. And so they need to, they need to get more in touch with the, the feminine side uh, of things. They need to subdue their competitive hungers. They need to suppress whatever drive to lead is, is in them rather than directing it towards good ends. Many are fed large doses of egalitarianism through the creators of culture, through movies, through shows, media, schools, books, even their own families, and, and unfortunately, in, in many cases, even in their own churches. They're told that there's nothing unique with them, there's nothing God-given that beckons them to lead, to take risks, to fight and work for something meaningful. Women can, can do all of these things. And, and of course, as the mantra goes, and they can do all of these things better. And so what, what role is there for you as a man? That's what many are taught and told. There's since all kinds of mixed messages about who they are to be as men and what it means to be a man and what your obligations and responsibilities are as a man or as a husband. And all of these mixed messages or ideas that undermine their fundamental nature at the same time strip them of their purpose. 
the purpose for which God has made them. He makes us for different purposes. He makes women for one purpose. He makes men for one purpose. And many are stripped of that purpose. And when that purpose is lost, when there is no goal to be striving towards, and a goal that is in line with their very nature, it leads to utter confusion and chaos. It leads in many cases to anger and violence and depression. Now, much has been written on this and on the lack of purpose that exists among many men that is leading to, in essence, a crisis of masculinity. But I think there's also a parallel to this when it comes to the Christian life. Many Christians have no real clue what their purpose is, what their life is to be about. Everything that they've heard is just about getting saved. Of course, there's nothing wrong with getting saved. We want to celebrate getting saved. There's something essentially uh, necessary about getting saved. When we're talking about somebody getting saved, of course, we're talking about conversion, coming to know the Lord at the first time. And if you don't know the Lord, yeah, that, that's priority number one. You need to get saved. You need to repent of your sins. You need to turn from them and trust in the Lord. So I don't want to say anything bad about that. That, that is what everyone must do. But what about after that? What comes next? What is my life supposed to be about? Do I just go on living as I have before? Maybe a few minor changes here and there. A few changes of perspective on some moral issues. Maybe a few minor changes on behaviors that I used to do that I'm no longer going to do now. But, but now I'll maybe just sort of slap a I love Jesus on everything. A, a, a sticker, you know. Bumper stickers. Maybe if I wear a t-shirt, because I'm a Christian. Right? That's, that's the essence of the Christian life. Right? Don't do certain things and wear Christian clothing. What, what's our purpose? What, what is our life supposed to be about? Many Christians don't have a clear purpose. They don't have a clear understanding of what's next, what their life is to be oriented towards from here on out. And because they lack that purpose, because they lack that understanding of who they are, they wander aimlessly. And they wander inevitably into all kinds, false doctrines, and moral chaos. There's no direction. And when the church is not giving a clear direction, a clear purpose for Christians, they will inevitably find a purpose somewhere else, outside of the Word of God, outside of the church, from the world, which will lead them 
into moral chaos, which will lead them to blaspheme the very name of God they, they profess to love. We need purpose. And friends, if you remember from last week, the Apostle Peter, of course, he's, he's writing this letter at the end of his life. This is a letter here of a dying man. His final words. We find in the beginning of this letter that Peter answers this very question about our purpose. Before he, he gets into some of these specific instructions that we'll see throughout the letter, some of these specific qualities that we are to pursue, some of these specific false teachers that we are to avoid, some of these specific promises that we are to hold on to. Before he gets into these specifics, he begins the letter by reminding us of who we are and what our purpose is. Indeed, all of the ethical and doctrinal instructions that follow in this letter are, in essence, specific ways in which we are to live out the purpose for which God has called us. Of course, we have to know what that purpose is, and that's what we find in this text. These first couple of verses here essentially tell us the beginning to the end of the Christian life. It's a very dense passage. It's chocked full of truth just within a, a short couple of lines, but it lays the theological foundation for the kind of qualities that are to be cultivated in our life, as we'll see in verses 5 to 11 next week. And the theological foundation that is laid, of course, begins with our conversion to God, our calling from God that defines who we are as those who've been called by God, and it ends with the purpose for that calling. Why is it that God, in His grace and mercy, called you, called me? What does He desire of us? What is the intention, the goal of this calling? Or to put it another way, Peter, in these first couple of verses, is telling us very plainly what the purpose of the Christian life is to be about. And he unpacks this purpose in a string of five propositions, and I want to look at each of these in turn. So the first proposition that we find here is that the divine power of God is at work within us. That's where everything starts. The divine power of God is at work within us. I want you to notice with me again in verse 3 where he says, His divine power, that is the, the divine power of God mediated through Jesus Christ has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now the subject here, of course, is the divine power of God. It is His divine power that is acting on our behalf. 
And, and even as we, we hear these words, th these words itself should be confidence-inducing. Right? They, should, they should be words that encourage us, that strengthen us, that embolden us. Because what is more important, or what is more, more powerful, rather, than the power of God? Now, can you think of anything? If you can, you've come up with the wrong answer. <laughs> There's nothing that is more powerful than the very power of God. It is by the power of God that all things have been made in heaven and on earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, the things that you can see with your naked eye, the things that you cannot see, the things you have to observe under a microscope, the things that you have to see from a telescope, everything that has been made, has been made from the very power of God. And you can just imagine the immensity, the strength of that very power. We find also from the Word of God that, that the very reason things continue on, the, the, the very reason they are upheld is because of the power of God. The Word of the power of Christ, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, is what upholds all things. We do not live in a world that is just sort of spinning on gears, going by itself. No, the only reason why things continue to exist as they do, the reason why we have the, the seasons that we have, the, the summer and the winter and the spring and the fall, is not because that's just how nature is. The reason nature is the way it is is because the very power of God is upholding it. The reason why we are here, sitting here, breathing, hearts beating, is not because our bodies are just machines that go on by themselves. No, they are upheld by the very power of God. God, in a moment, he could cause that heart to stop. He holds us by the power of his word. We see also in the word of God that it was the power of God. It was by that power that the entire world was flooded in judgment in the days of Noah. Imagine that kind of power. We've seen floods before. We've seen tsunamis before. We've seen the sort of devastation that a tsunami localized in a particular territory can cause. How much more when it's water that covers the whole face of the earth? And yet it is God in his power who does that, who does that with, with his word. You can think of the, the great days of the Exodus. He rescues the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and he parts the sea. That's the power of God. It is the power of God that directs the hearts of kings to accomplish his will. Whatever nations and empires that we can think of from the past or even in the present, no matter how powerful we perceive them to be, they are but a drop in the bucket in comparison to the power of God that directs the very hearts of kings to do His will. 
And of course, probably one of the greatest displays of his power on earth was that power that raised Jesus from the dead. There has been no one who has been able to defeat that power of death except one. And that is God in the resurrection of Christ. It is this very power of God the one that upholds all creation, the one that triumphs over death. It is this very power of God that is directed to us for our good, poured out, given to us. It is this power of God that Peter says elsewhere guards us through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. As he says in 1 Peter, it guards us, it protects us, it keeps us. There's no greater wall than that. The power of God. And here, it is this same power that is at work for our good. But what is it doing? What is this power doing? Well, Peter says here again, he says that it grants us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is, all things that have to do with eternal life, with salvation, with receiving and entering into our promised inheritance, and all things having to do with our life now. Godliness our sanctification, our progressive transformation and renewal, our growth in holiness, our pursuit of becoming more like Christ. God does not withhold anything that we need in this pursuit. He, by His power, has granted us all things. He has sufficiently and abundantly supplied us with all of the resources we need to be godly. And He is constantly at work within us. Philippians 2, 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is a Vitally important reminder that Peter gives us, and especially so for many Christians who have effectively thrown in the towel in their pursuit of godliness. Those kinds of Christians, perhaps you're one of them, especially need to be reminded of that truth. There are many who stumble and fall, of course we all stumble and fall, give in to temptation and sin. But when they sin, they descend, in essence, into a death spiral. It sends them into a depressed and defeated mentality where the prospect of a true godly life just seems too far out of reach. It's impossible. 
They shrivel into a mentality of thinking that they're always going to be sinful. They're always going to be a slave to sin. And so what's really the point? What's the point of pursuing godliness? It's a fool's errand. Or at least it's not for me. It may be for, for some Christians that are out there. You know, for those super Christians that, that we see. You know, those really godly people. That's not for me. I'm just glad that my sins are forgiven and there's no more. Friends, Peter reminds us here that if that is how you are thinking, if godliness is just too hard for you because you're just too sinful, your flesh, your temptations are just too powerful, What Peter is saying is that if that's our mentality, you're calling God a liar. You're denying his very word. You're not trusting in him. You're not exercising faith. You're calling him a liar. You're denying his very power. Indeed, you're saying that his power that is at work in you is simply not great enough to overcome the power of sin and the flesh. Which is also a denial, really, of the resurrection. And a denial of its power. Because you'll remember from Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that it is the very power of the resurrection that gave us new life. That raised us from the dead. To deny that the power of God can overcome your own sin is to say the resurrection has no power. My friends, it is nothing more than the deceitfulness of sin, not the truthfulness of sin that convinces us that godliness and holiness are not for us. They're just they're too difficult. It's too far out of reach. And Peter reminds us of the power that is actually at work within us. God has given us every single thing we need for life and for godliness. Which leads us here to the second proposition, which is that all the things we need are granted. It comes to us through knowledge, through knowing. Of course, knowing what? That's pretty important. There's two things here. One is knowing God. He gives us what we need through knowing Him. That is to say that there is no life, there is no godliness apart from knowing Him. It begins by knowing Him. But also, the more we know Him, the more we see Him, the more we commune and fellowship with Him, the more we understand godliness and the more we become like Him. Calvin wrote in the beginning of the Institutes of the Christian Religion that our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, and here as he's speaking about wisdom, he's talking about how we live 
what our lives are to be like, the things that we do. Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And of course, if you think about it, this makes perfect sense. To become godly, we must know God and know Him more. And it makes sense because, of course, we are made in the image of God. We are made to reflect who God is in our own lives. But, of course, to image Him, we must know Him. We must know who He is. We must know what He's like. We must know what pleases Him. We must know God. So how does God make us godly? Well, one answer is He gives us Himself. He gives us Himself. But second, we are to know our calling. We know Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. And this calling here doesn't simply refer to the the general call of the gospel that goes out to all people everywhere, the, the summons for all people to repent. Now, this calling here refers to that effective call, that work of God, whereby through the means of the word and the gospel, he regenerates us and justifies us, and gives us a new heart, and He opens our eyes to see the beauty of Christ, and He opens our ears to hear for the first time, now and forever, the sweetness of the Gospel. It's that effective work of God. It's that calling that snatches us out of the darkness, that brings us into the light. It's a sovereign calling. It's a free act of God. What what Peter says comes by his own glory and excellence. It comes by his power and it comes about as a result of nothing more than the goodness and kindness of his own character. It is a calling that is the work of the love of God poured out upon us. And it is a transformative calling. It's the calling of conversion. And we must know this calling because it is this calling that tells us who we now are. It's an identity-forming calling. It tells us who we are. It tells us that we belong to God. It tells us that He has set us apart. It tells us that we have become heirs of the kingdom of God. It tells us that we have become wedded in covenant to the Lord Jesus. That's who we are. Spoke of a crisis of masculinity earlier. There's certainly a crisis of identity as well. Don't. People don't know who they are because primarily they're looking within. We learn who we are by looking without. God tells us who we are. That's been the case from the very beginning. You are made in the image of God. That's who you are. And for Christians, this calling tells us who we are. You belong to God. You're an heir of the kingdom. That's who you are. 
And we are to live in accordance with that very calling. But then we come to a third proposition here, which is that God has granted us also great promises. Peter says in verse 4 that it is by God's excellence or by His, His goodness that He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Now, He doesn't, of course, spell these out. He doesn't give us a list of what all of these promises are. For the most part, He just assumes that we know them, that we have some familiarity with them. But it is worth noting that there are many of them. It's plural, promises. At the end of his letter, Peter does give an example of at least one promise that he has in mind, which is the inheritance of a new heavens and a new earth. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so you can see here that Peter is especially thinking of those things that are to come in the future. The kingdom. Righteousness. We might add the resurrection. The redemption of our bodies. The very presence of God. The covenant promise that He will be our God and we will be His people. And of course, many more to be added. These are promises that Peter says have been granted to us by the goodness of God. These are promises which speak of the glory that is to come. Promises that tell us the direction that all things are moving towards, particularly for believers. The good direction that things are moving in. He is speaking to us of our future. But He's speaking to us of our future, not just so that we can have wonderful hopes for things to come in a distant time and feel good about the way things that, uh, will eventually shape out. No, He speaks to us of these promises here for a reason. Which brings us to the fourth proposition, which is that the promises of God, those things that we look forward to in the future, they define our purpose now. Those promises define our purpose now. Notice how verse 4 continues. He has granted to us His precious and very great promises for what purpose? So that. This is one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible. Whenever you find a, a so that, or with the result that, it's, I mean, it's, it's telling you, what's everything for? What's all of this about? He tells us. He's granted us these very great promises so that through them, through these promises, through these hopes, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, when Peter here speaks of the divine nature, he is not referring to those things which are unique to God alone. Often, 
course, when we speak of the divine nature of God, we are speaking of things like his, his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. Uh, the very fact that he's the creator. He upholds all things. There's nothing more powerful than he is. We think about things like his omniscience. He knows all things. His, his omnipresence. He's, he's everywhere. He sees all things. Often when we speak of God's divine nature, we are thinking about those things that make God distinctly God. Peter's not talking about that here. We will never become like that. Uh, God is not going to make us little g gods. We're not going to be, as the Mormons say, given our, our whole new universe and a new planet over which we can rule on. No, we don't become like God in that sense. This whole passage, not only in the first couple of verses, but even in the verses to follow, has a moral focus to it. The focus is on moral qualities. Peter, of course, speaks of godliness in the very beginning. He speaks of God's own excellence, that is, His moral goodness. It's the same word that we'll come across again in verse 5, where he speaks of virtues, goodness. At the end of, uh, of the verse, he speaks of escaping the corruption that is in the world. And then, of course, in verses 5 and following, he speaks of all these moral qualities like virtue and self-control. Right, the, the whole focus of the passage is moral in nature. And here, when Peter speaks of the divine nature that we become partakers of, he is speaking of the moral attributes of God that we are called to imitate. The love of God, His goodness, His holiness. You be holy, for I am holy. His righteousness. These moral attributes of God. That's what Peter is referring to. What theologians will often refer to as communicable attributes of God. Those things that are communicated to us. That's Peter's focus here. And so he's saying that God has given us His promises so that we may become like Him. So that we may become holy, righteous, good, loving, and more. And this is not only something that we become after the resurrection or when we are glorified. No, we become like this even now. In other words, God gives us His promises. He tells us of what is coming. He tells us of what we will be like in order to shape who we are now. We prepare for those things to come by living them out now in the grace of God and by the Spirit of God. The purpose for God's work in us. The reason why He has called us. The reason why He has given us all things. The reason why He shows His goodness to us. The reason why the many promises of His Word are given to us. The purpose of all of this 
The purpose of your calling is that you become like him. That's the direction all things are moving towards. That's what our life is to be about now. We have to understand that that is a purpose which stands in authority over every other purpose or goal or pursuit or work in our lives. Everything we do, whether it is related to work or family or church, is to be about becoming like God, is to be about reflecting His image. I mean, just think, just think about the many moral instructions that were given in the Word of God. Just think of one of the most obvious ones, instructions that are given to husbands and wives in the context of marriage in Ephesians 5. Husbands, you're to love your wife. How? Like Christ loved the church. Husbands, you are to be like Jesus. Your godliness is to be a reflection of Jesus' love and care and concern and sacrifice for his wife. Husbands, you lay down your life for your wife as Christ did so for the church. Wives, you also reflect the image of Christ in His relationship to the church. You are the picture of the church. You are the glory of the husband. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, and as you live out that glory, your specific calling is to reflect how the church submits herself in love to Christ. All of our ethical, moral instructions, everything having to do with godliness is about reflecting the image of God in the world. That's who God will make us to be. And that's the direction everything is moving in. And thus, our entire lives, every sphere of our lives is to reflect something of God. That is our godliness. That is our pursuit. So to come full circle, back to verse 3, our purpose is godliness. And God gives us all things we need for that purpose to be realized. For us to become godly. He calls us he gives us Himself. He gives us His promises. And then our fifth proposition, He frees us from sin. He frees us from sin. Our pursuit of godliness is not a fruitless pursuit. It is to be a fruitful pursuit because of the truth that we find at the end of verse 4. We have escaped. By the power of God and by the grace of God, we have escaped. That's an indicative statement. That's happened. If you are in Christ, you've escaped. We've escaped 
the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We are not bound anymore. We're not enslaved to corruption. Romans 6.22 says that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit of which leads to eternal life. When you didn't know Christ, when you didn't have the Spirit of God, you were dead in your sin. You had no spiritual or moral capacity to do anything that is godly. You were without God, and therefore, without the ability to be godly. Without any power at work within you to be godly. You could be exhorted. You could be commanded. You could even be pressured by the sword to be godly. And yet you would never do it because you were bound by the chains of sin. And you were as much a part of the world as death itself. But when God in His power called you and made you alive, He broke the chains of sin. He set you free. You have been set free as much as Israel was set free when they were lo no longer in Egypt. And you are called now just as Israel was exhorted then. Don't go back. Don't return to Egypt. You can do that. You can keep going. You can go through the wilderness. God will be with you. He will guide you. He will go before you. Don't go back to sin. Even if it tells you, even if it convinces you, even if things in the wilderness are difficult and you are being convinced that Egypt is better. We had bread. You don't go back. You've been set free. You've escaped the corruption of the world. God has rescued you. He has transferred you from one kingdom to another. You were a citizen of the kingdom of darkness child of wrath. Now you're a child of God. He gives you a new identity. And with that new identity comes a new purpose. A purpose that can be fulfilled because you have the Spirit of God and you have the power of God at work within you. And that purpose is godliness. He does not call us to do that which will never happen. He calls us to be godly and supplies everything we need in that pursuit. Now as the chapter continues on, Peter's going to explain in some more detail what this pursuit of godliness entails. He's going to give more specifics about what this looks like. But here, in these opening couple of verses, the point is a very simple one. Here the point is to, to really embolden us, to encourage us, to exhort us. It gives us confidence. It's to give us hope. It's to guard us against going down the path of moral chaos 
that characterized the false teachers and those who were following the false teachers that he'll warn about in chapter 2. They are pursuing nothing more than sin and sensuality. And Peter's saying in the beginning, that's not who you are. He's guarding us from going down that path. And he's reminding us of who we are. We are Christians. That's not just a political term. That's not a voting block. That's not a religion. That's who you are. I'm a Christian. I belong to Jesus. He's my king. He's taken me from the world brought me into his kingdom, seated me with him in the heavenly places. That's who I am. He told us, he's telling us who we are. We have been called by God himself. And we have the very power of God and the power of the resurrection at work within us. And it is at work to make us godly. He is beginning here laying the foundation so that as we hear these additional instructions that are to come, these these things that we are to pursue in our lives, this virtue, this self-control, we hear it through through the new ears, through the ears that have heard the sweet promises that we belong to God and God is making us godly. And so we can pursue these things. We can fight the war against sin in confidence, knowing that God, who began a good work within us, will bring it to completion. Amen. Let's go to the Lord like a blessing on his word. Father, we are grateful for your sweet and precious and many great promises. And we are grateful that as we are given a kind of prophetic vision of what is to come, that it guides who we are to be even now. And we are grateful for the great promise that Peter gives to us in the very beginning of this letter, that your great power is at work within us, that you do not withhold any good thing from us, that you've granted us all things, that you guard us by your power. So, Father, I pray that for any who are here who are entangled in the webs of sin, Lord, that you would show forth your power and break those webs and Help them to realize that if they are in Christ, they are no longer enslaved in the dominion of sin, but they've escaped that corruption. And they can fight that good fight and win. And so, Father, make us godly, we pray. 
in Jesus' name.